Although I'm a doctor by profession, I'm not your doctor. All content and information on this podcast and on our website is for informational and educational purposes and does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of patient-client relationship by use of our site. Although we strive to present accurate information, the podcast and website are not a substitute for your healthcare provider. Always consult the healthcare professional who knows your particular needs and circumstances before making any health-related decisions. Also, there are curse words that are unedited and graphic descriptions of bodies, bodily fluids, and other real-life scenarios that might make some listeners uncomfortable. Hi, I'm Dr. Suzanne Ciotti. And I'm Becca Hammer. Welcome to the Perimena Podcast. Topic of the day. We are going to uh, change direction a little bit from the first several episodes that we have recorded and shown to you, which are about your symptoms. And today, what we're going to talk about is what in the world does your doctor actually know? Here's what. Here's where this came about. It seems like time and time again, I hear from my girlfriends that they showed up at their doctor's office with all these perimenopausal symptoms, only to be met with a shrug of the shoulders a prescription for antidepressants, or my personal favorite, mm. suck it up, it'll pass. <laughs> now, yeah. don't don't get me wrong. Right. I understand that women's health is about the last thing on researchers' mind. As a matter of fact, as we were doing the last episode on hair loss, Suzanne, I realized that most of the treatments available were results of an off-label use from a medication that was probably developed for men. So even the stuff that is available to us wasn't actually intended for us in the first place. And, and so I, you know, we've had a conversation and I think it's important for the listeners to understand how has, how are their doctors trained? What do they know about women? What do they know about hormones? What do they know about women's healthcare and not just women, perimenopausal women? So I thought maybe if we could right. do mm-hmm. a breakdown of how medical professionals are trained, because we're going to talk a lot about about a lot of different ones today. If we can, if you if you can understand how they're trained, maybe that'll help you approach your doctor asking good questions. And if you're not getting the kind of information or results that you're looking for, that you know that, that you can knock on a different door. Fair. Absolutely. Such a good point uh, that we are definitely trained differently. I'm an MD, so I was trained in in the States, in the United States and Kansas. And we're just going to talk first about an overview of doctor training. There's a DO, a doctor of osteopathy, and MD, so medical doctor. Most doctors are MDs. They're probably about 40% that are DOs, though. And they have training that's similar. We go to a four-year training program that's the basics of medicine. We'll learn the science behind 
the, the body. And then we do a year of pathology, learning about medicines. And then we do two years of clinical rotations, uh, the third and fourth year of medical school. And that is when we get our first exposure to gynecology and obstetrics. And usually the gynecology portion is kind of included in office visits uh, with a gynecologist and is really limited and will totally depend on what that doctor is seeing that day. So it's not as, uh, it may not be as comprehensive. So you're not sitting around during your rotation, Uh, seeing perimenopausal women eight hours a day during your rotation. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I I meant, I didn't mean to say comprehensive from all medical standpoint, mostly just from the point of view of like medicine for women's health, um, where it is actually extremely comprehensive for lots of things because you're doing neurosurgery rotations and you're doing cardiovascular rotations, learning how to do stress tests. It's just so much to get into two years, trying out each one of the specialties so that way you can get decide what you want to do once you graduate. And that comes to the next phase of training, which is residency. Doctors, after they finish medical school, go to residency. That's usually in something very specific. Most people who are going to be treating you with the hormone therapies either went through an OB uh, or obstetrics and gynecology rotation, or they might have been family practice rotation uh, or, or residency program. And typically, Within those rotations, like the the, the uh, family medicine residency program is a three-year program. We do deliveries. Mostly we do deliveries. We'll do lots of deliveries. Almost we did it the entire three years that we were there. Uh, and then we spend some time in rotations doing some gynecology. We learned colposcopy. We certainly learned how to do pap smears, and that was included in our clinic. Yeah. So that's a a form of gynecology where you're looking at the cervix with the microscope and trying to see if they might have cancer or precancer, evaluating HPV and abnormal pap smears. So we did learn quite a bit, but uh, but still just like little little bits of here and there. Not extensive about uh, specifically women's uh, okay. So it, 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 it so it sounds like so you go to med school. You do, everybody does training. Then you do all these rotations where it could be anything from bones to obstetrics to, mm-hmm. yeah, all the different, really setting the table to say, would you like to be a specialist in something? <laughs> and then you do residency, but really a lot of the obstetrics and gynecology portion is focused on delivering babies and checking for abnormal mm-hmm. uh, uteruses and abnormalities yeah. of of women's reproductive cycles, right? <laughs> right, and and so cancer. Actually, we did have a lot of uh, like cancer diagnosis and treatment and surgeries uh, to remove ovaries that they were thought to have cancer. So that was a that kind of the more severe end of the spectrum for women's health is what we focused on mostly. I'd say in our gynecology rotation. Yeah, uh, so just you're really not school. looking at again at for any prolonged period of time the issues that women in perimenopause are going through. They kind of come as they come along. Right. It's not like you're spending your entire right. rotation focused on that. 
exactly. And, and that's the thing that's really true about a lot of physicians, I think during their training, especially if you're a generalist. So that would be family medicine, internal medicine, uh, and, uh, just general practitioner that you, you get a lot of, of, uh, training on, on a, a, a wide, a broad amount of medicine, a, you know, wide variety of different medicine, medical specialties. And if you want to dive deeper, you have to do it on your own. And there's lots of opportunities for that because every year we need to have at least 50, uh, hours of continuing medical education. So that way we're learning new things, but we get to pick it ourselves. It can be whatever it is that we want. And typically people who doctors who feel like they need more training in something, they'll, they'll pick it. Um, and so it's, they may get some more training on hormone therapies. if they. But like I also that imagine time. that continuing education so, also is dictated by social circumstances. So for example, I, I would mm -hmm. bet my last nickel that every single doctor out there spent the COVID years getting their continuing education in COVID related medicine, right? <laughs> absolutely. That's absolutely true. And the other thing it's dependent on and is the kind of patients you get. So I know for me, I was in practice for a long time with my husband and he, I would get the women because uh, they wanted, they preferred seeing another woman uh, and Jay would get the men. So I naturally started getting people who were having lots of issues with either period issues or they wanted birth control or they were pregnant. I spent uh, five years delivering babies. Um, and then went into a practice where I was just doing outpatient medicine. And in that practice, I ended up seeing tons and tons more women who are having menopausal symptoms. So for me, a lot of my education has been really in the past 20 years, self-education about what are the different options that I can offer or learning about bioidentical hormone therapies uh, on my own. That was never anything that was even at an Academy of Family Medicine conference. Uh, per se, it was something that's more considered functional medicine. Um, and uh, so so really had to go out on my own and try to find that that training to know how to do those kinds of... Um, so the takeaway right. then is that once a doctor leaves, a, a, somebody who does like family practice, somebody who does all the things, not a specialist, mm -hmm. but someone who does that, once they leave medical school and have their baseline of understanding about women's health, then it's really incumbent upon the individual physician to continue their education towards symptoms and right. treatment of women, specifically women in perimenopause. It ain't gonna happen naturally. I mean, they're gonna learn things as they go along, obviously, but as far as continuing education goes, right. it's gonna be up to that individual. That's a good, that's absolutely right. And you need to find the information yourself. Uh, and um, that's, uh, so, and we do that. We do a lot of reading. We do a lot of looking at journals. We do a lot of research on our own. There's a lot of really good information on the internet that you're able to find researching these different topics. So a lot of us are motivated to go do that. And so we can provide the best services for our patients. Well, let's hear a little um, bit more so, about, so yeah, that's kind of a summation. about some of the other, did you mention the DO? has a different trip yeah so do's they they're pretty similar though they have a four-year uh medical school track they learn more osteopathic medicine which includes manipulations of the spine so it might not be really that pertinent to hormone therapy but they do have kind of a broader view of the the look at the the body as a whole especially the mechanical structure of the body and then they do exactly the same residency okay. program that we do so there, and, and sometimes you might have a DO 
who is a surgeon, a general surgeon or a gynecologist or an obstetrician. So they, they can do exactly the same residencies that we can. So from that point, they're just the same as, as a All right, so MDs. we've talked about people who have, are generalists, people who can do everything from looking at a skin infection to delivering babies. So let's then talk about the training right. that specialists have, because again, I think that what I'm hearing is a lot of perimenopausal women yeah. actually see their gynecologists and, and they are... Right. Sometimes surprised at how little the gynecologist um, can provide as far as relief goes, mm-hmm. because you would think that a doctor trained in women's health issues would be right there with the, on the hormone train. You'd think that that would be the natural go-to. Right. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about how their specialty training helps or doesn't help when it comes to women who are right. perimenopausal women who are looking for support. They do get some uh, training in clinics. Uh, of course, that's part of our, our residencies typically to see patients kind of in an outpatient office setting. Um, and so that's probably where the biggest exposure is to hormone therapies. There's been a real shift in over the past uh, 25 years in who, whether we advocate for or against hormone therapies based on that woman's health initiative that we're gonna talk about a little bit today. Uh, in general, like in the, we'll say like the 2000s, like the beginning of the 2000s, there was a definite trend to get keep women off of hormones. Uh, and then as the, you know, those decades progressed, we learned, wait, maybe there are some people who would actually benefit uh, for relief of some of their symptoms. Uh, so the kind of the trend uh, changed a little bit. I would say in general, though, a lot of uh, gynecologists uh, who are, are even more recently trained are still tending to steer clear of estrogen replacement therapy unless absolutely uh, necessary. And sometimes that's a matter of how much the patient complains. So how much of an advocate for yourself you are with your hot flashes and your sleep, uh, you know, and uh, maybe joint pain or fatigue, there's less of a trend to probably prescribe treatments for those symptoms of menopause. Uh, and their training is very much, they're learning lots of new surgeries having to do with bladder repairs, hysterectomies, cancer treatments. They're also learning uh, uh, delivering babies, but also C-sections, high-risk pregnancies. Uh, what, what about genetic, looking for genetic markers in pregnancies? Also, uh, uh, you know, there's a trend towards uh, screening women as well, of course, for um, genetic abnormalities for breast cancer. So that's one of their kind of their their focuses as well, and and uh, the, there are because they are sometimes the only physician a woman will see for several years because that's your primary care doc. You're seeing them for your your annual wellness. They also will sometimes uh, do your screening labs for cholesterol. They might be the people to pick up on that you have high blood pressure. Uh, so there's a little overlap there with what a family practitioner. Yeah, and I've heard a, a, a number so of a- women who, you know, they had a couple of kids and they really liked their OB and they felt like they could really connect with them. And right. they really looked at their annual mm-hmm. exam anyway as the breast exam and the pap smear. So why don't I just keep going to the mm-hmm. OBGYN for it and, and kind of never went right. back to the GP for 
their regular mm-hmm. care, uh, which I thought was really interesting. But, right. but so what I hear you saying, though, is that, you know, your OBGYN also wears a lot of hats and doesn't just <laughs> focus mm-hmm. on your hormones, right? They've got a lot of other things. They're looking for right. things that are much more serious, uh, much more impactful. Their their feel, their scope of uh, expertise falls can fall into surgeries and cancer and things like that. And it, I'm not suggesting that that, of course, is not important to be able to screen for. But when you're walking in with your constellation of symptoms, understand that they're mm-hmm, probably right? trained to look for something more <laughs> severe. Yeah. Okay. Yep, that's right. And and you might see a trend, uh, I think we've discussed uh, uh, before in, in even gynecology offices that if you're going in for just your for your annual wellness exam, you're you're less likely to see an oh, right. or DO uh, gynecologist unless you really have an, a, a bigger issue like you had an abnormal pap or you're following up for cancer. Uh, then maybe you would, but uh, but it's common to end up seeing somebody like a, a a PA, for instance, which is a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner. Let's talk a little bit so, about them because um, so, I think I think that the role yeah. of those two uh, has been severely misunderstood. There, first of all, I think their names are misnomers, and people have a wrong idea about yeah. what they do. Yes, and I think you're right. Their their, no, their names are misnomers, and sometimes people think, well, a nurse practitioner means a nurse. That's somebody that's just just you know like who the same person who's checking me in and doing my vitals. And they're not. They get extensive training, and they usually start off with a you know they they usually do get their their RN degree first before they even go on to getting their nurse practitioner degree. And that can be like four to six years of training or two to three, depending on where you're starting. They do have quite a bit of training. Once, they're, once they've graduated, they've had a lot of clinical rotations under their Lots. belts, usually things that are more, a lot of different specialties. Uh, and they're able to uh, practice very autonomously. So they don't need to have an MD or DO oversight. They they can really practice independently and have so their an LPS. So nurse so practitioner nurse practitioners. can write prescriptions, for example. Is that what you're saying when you talk yes, about autonomy? Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. And they can put in IUDs and they can uh, write the bioidentical or hormone therapies for you. Some of them can do colposcopy. They definitely can do your pap smears, follow up on your mammograms and all of so those So the idea, if I'm not uh, seeing usually, my MD, if I'm not seeing the MD, which by the way, I haven't seen an MD for years. It's, it's I, I've only oh, yeah. seen nurse practitioners and PAs. And, and at first I was a little miffed right. about it, like, what, am I not important enough? But then when I started to understand the capacity that they had and the expertise that they had, uh, I was right. I was more than fine. And B, I could always get in. Right. <laughs> yes, that and also they have yep. time. Usually they have longer mm-hmm. appointment times. They have, they're not uh, waiting, like they don't have one ear waiting for the call to go to surgery. Um, you know, they're not trying to juggle a bunch of things at once. Usually they're 
focused on what's happening in that clinic with the patient. And usually they've, if they're in an office like an OB uh, gynecology office, that's what they've been doing for years. So they do know quite a bit about women's health. And if they didn't get in training, they're certainly learning it um, uh, either by reading on their own or taking additional uh, medical And so what you've training. told me as well so, is that, it, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but you told me that one of the most knowledgeable people in your town it, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to women, hormonal changes, and perimenopause assistance and support is an LPN that you guys have in town. Right. Yep. A nurse practitioner. Exactly. Yes. So she's, and she's excellent as she's uh, well-respected and, and does an excellent job for women and picks up on, uh, you know, side effects that might, that, or reasons that you shouldn't be on, uh, contraindications, uh, for being on hormone therapy. She's just wonderful. So, so definitely that might be an option for you if you're looking for somebody who specializes in well, hormone therapy. So that brings us to again, physician assistant. Talk about uh, the biggest, and yeah. I, I'll, hey, you know me, I'm, I'm more than happy to give my mea culpas. When I first heard that I was going to see a physician's assistant, I literally did not know the mm-hmm. difference between a, a physician's assistant and a CNA, a certified nurse whatever it is, you know, one of those brand new people. I literally thought that a physician's assistant could take my blood pressure, (laughs) you know, take my vital signs and check me in, like you said. And I was completely wrong. So talk a little bit about the PA education path and, and how qualified they are. PAs uh, generally will have some sort of associate or bachelor's degree. Then they'll go on to get their PA degree, which includes many clinical rotations as well. So their training program, depending on how much undergraduate they have, is two to six years. If you do it right out of high school, like without doing an undergrad or bachelor's, then it's usually at least a six-year program. So they're trained quite a bit when you think compared to like even an uh, MD or, or to the nurse practitioner. They've had a lot of lot of years experience and and training and exposure to different health uh, related issues didn't you also tell me that a lot of pas came into it because maybe before that they were like an ent an emt right so emt right like a medical responder yeah emerging medical therapist or responder yeah, they and they they're uh, they're excellent um, usually because they've really thought about what is it that I want to do next. What are my next steps? Generally, they have an idea. Well, I really want to do ortho, or I really want to do family medicine, or I really want to do gynecology or oncology. So they can they can move into a, a slot in any profession and generally we'll pick rotations that are, are are geared more to those things that they're most interested in and want to practice in. So they're generally very, you know, very good uh, in an office that has physicians, uh, MDs and DOs in it uh, because they need to have some sort of physician oversight just because of their licensure. Uh, it, they prob- A lot of them are extremely independent practitioners. It's not like they're going to need to review everything with another person. Uh, it's just periodic chart reviews typically. And once you know they're doing well, then they can just be on their basically on their own. So they're also a one great reason I resource. like the idea of the physician's assistant as well. It's because a they've probably been in the field doing something that was medical medically adjacent, right? And then they choose the path. Mm-hmm. They don't go to med school, I guess, because they didn't have what two hundred fifty thousand dollars to sink into med school or the time. But they yeah, have, right. they, have, they bring there a certain amount too. of. Yeah. 
information already into the plan. And then it's almost like an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's like they really are learning yeah. hands-on. It isn't theoretical. It's They're right there in the clinics working with patients side-by-side yeah. side with the physicians, learning things. And so, again, I... My preconceived notions about PAs is shot. I am more than happy right. to see a PA when I have a chance as well. You might even notice that with a PA or a nurse practitioner, you have more time. That there's they have more time. To that is exactly. So that has been be absolutely my experience. I I laugh at you all the time about you know your thirty minute appointment, which I've never had with an MD, but I, I have regularly right. had with a nurse <laughs> practitioner who seems to be like. You're my whole world right now, baby. Let's talk about you. Yeah, and I'm like, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, st- staying with the yeah. staying with the idea of women perimenopausal women's health and the types mm-hmm. of, of the types of people who can support and are potentially knowledgeable about that. Uh, so we talked about MDs and DOs and LPNs and physicians assistants. Anybody mm-hmm. else? Who else is on the list? Yeah, so one are naturopathic physicians, so they they have the letters N D after their name, and that those are people that uh, have had more training in herbal options. Some of them may have had a small amount of training in uh, like compounded hormone therapies, so they might be a resource as well. Um, they also operate independently and are probably, they can't do prescriptions for regular medicines though. So like if you really need an estrogen prescription, that's a regular pill, like um, estradiol, then that's not going to be the person that'd be able to do that for you, but they'd have other recommendations and, and probably more likely to counsel you about uh, diet and exercise, li- other lifestyle changes, maybe some herbals you can use for support or other kinds of modalities like uh, neurofeedback, biofeedback, um, acupuncture, functional medicine, maybe provide more testing than you would get from an MD or DO. So that's yeah. a naturopath. And then there's also actually independent pharmacists. So some pharmacists that will um, counsel patients as well uh, about hormone therapies. And those generally are people who are also uh, involved in a compounding pharmacy. uh, And they can be, um, you can make an appointment with them to talk about treatment options. They usually have a a physician supervisor so that they're overviewing all of the prescriptions because a pharmacist is not licensed to make, write their own prescriptions. But I'm not gonna Um, gonna find them in a big chain though. That's that's not gonna be on my big chain (laughs) pharmacy that also sells you know everything under the sun, right? Right. We're we're talking about, would this be an independent somewhere? And I, I, Honestly, I was right I, when Suzanne and I were talking about this. I don't think I've seen an independent pharmacist since uh, 1980. Yeah. <laughs> not not anywhere I've been. Right. But that doesn't say. I mean, what that means is that yeah. I've been brainwashed into going to big chains. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yep, they're still out there, though. There's still a few of them out there, and they can be a great resource because they do have time to talk, and they can explain a little bit more the specific sorts of options that are available, which we haven't even touched about yet. You know, we've kind of given people a myriad of options, but then within 
each option, there's a whole bunch of other options too. So, so they're good for helping you figure that out too. And because they do compounding, oftentimes they can help, uh, like, I think I might've mentioned in the past, a past episode, make things a certain flavor, make them liquid, put them in trochies, make them a topical cream. So sometimes they're useful for getting a, a, a form that's really good for you. And that's going to be effective. Okay. Anybody else? That's, I mean, that's yeah. a lot. So that, well, I just, I yes. really appreciate yeah, that that's you've enough, that's, expanded the options, yeah. right? Because usually people, mm-hmm. people have a tendency to think like very linear. I go to this one doctor for this one thing right. and they do all the things for me. Or I go to my OB because mm-hmm. I had a kid with them and I'm comfortable. But I think, I think that what's right. really important is, and especially if you've been in that situation where you go in and you're not getting the response you need. And that doesn't—that mm-hmm. doesn't, that doesn't mean magic pill, you know. By listening to us, that does not right. mean magic pill. But if your symptoms are not taken seriously, mm-hmm. or the the person that you're seeing doesn't want to sit down and really discuss what you're going through and talk about a myriad mm-hmm. of treatment options, you got to look someplace else, girl. Right. You have got to look someplace else. Right. That uh, that's absolutely right. So there's all of these people, and if when you're looking it up or talking to other women about who they may have seen, these are just some of those options that might be out there, even in your community or in a neighboring community that you might want to go for. Um, so so that if you don't feel like your MD or your DO that you see regularly for routine exams is is addressing your menopausal health and that's that's where that those are other one thing suzanne that i have found was interesting in our conversation as you were educating me on all of these different people and all these providers who can support you is one of the things that we talked about is the treatment and recommendations that you receive may very well be associated with how long your provider has been practicing when did they go to med school mm-hmm. and how long have they been practicing? Because you were telling me, and I'd like you mm-hmm. to elaborate on this, that let's say you're an obstetrician, uh, OBGYN, and you were before 2000, your treatment might have looked much, much different than if you went and saw the same person in 2005. Talk a little bit about why that is. Mm-hmm. What exactly made that sea change of how we think about women's health and hormones? There was a uh, this women's health initiative that was uh, something that people providers uh, decided was important to uh, the first investigate. Time ever. Uh, this was the <laughs> for the first time ever. There became this awareness that women uh, women's health is its own independent <gasps> sort of thing, and that we that maybe women are not just like uh, men with some extra estrogen <laughs> and progesterone. That maybe we 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 were, we're different in the way that we have heart disease or strokes or cancer, and maybe we should be looked at independently. So in the 80s, uh, this discussion started to come up that maybe we need to do something bigger to make sure that preventative tools that we're using are as effective in women mm-hmm. as they are in men. So so it was kind of, it was an it was an eye-opening time, kind of a new new way of looking at things. So uh, they actually, we started this Women's Health Initiative, which is a very big study that was supposed to be over a 15-year period of time, looking at women ages 50 to 79. 
There was about 160,000 women who were enrolled in it um, initially. There were different arms of it. They were mostly looking at cardiovascular disease because that's a very big killer in the United States. And then they were also looking at cancer and osteoporosis because they knew that that was very influenced by hormonal therapies. Uh, but what's interesting is that they were not looking at any Surprise. menopause symptoms. I don't even think they said the all. big M word uh, or and never the perimenopause <laughs> word right. during the 80s. And even though they were intending to catch women in their 50s to 79, the average age of the women in the in the group, the cohort, was about okay, so. 63. <laughs> so way later than when we would typically start to see menopausal symptoms. And, you know, if you're starting hormones, then maybe it's different than if you were starting them right after the first years that their estrogen is starting to drop. So there might have been some problems with the studies, and we're still, I think that we're still digging deep in them, trying to figure it out. But during this time, when they're testing women and looking at all these risk factors, about seven years, uh, five to seven years into the study, they found that there are a lot of women who Uh, after being put on estrogen replacement therapy, so they were either no therapy, just diet and exercise alone, estrogen and progesterone therapy, or just estrogen therapy. And they found that those women in the arms that included estrogen and progesterone were having a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease uh, and um, breast cancer. So by, by a small, by a percentage that, and they decided to actually stop the study and say, wait a minute, maybe this isn't all, we shouldn't be giving women estrogen like crazy to help. I remember that, Suzanne. I remember those news reports coming out. I remember coworkers that I had who literally just flushed those pills away and uh, estrogen became Mm -hmm. the devil and they caused cancer. It was, it was, it was high drama. Um, You know, a lot of listeners to the show might not have been, I I worked at a newspaper at the time. So of course I knew the headlines, but it it was, it was a thing, but but there's always a but. Hormone, (laughs) right. (laughs) Right. So they had some of these kind of parts of the arms of the trial where we administered people who didn't, hadn't had any hormone therapy. We gave them estrogen and progesterone. And then there was also a component that was just looking at women, uh, kind of just surveying them over that same period of time without giving them a certain sort of medicine. And what was interesting is that they actually found that for those women who were kind of choosing it on their own, they had actually a, maybe even a little bit decreased incidence of, of uh, heart disease, and they didn't see that incidence of breast cancer. So there were some probable problems with kind of some of the, the study information. I mean, it, it, it was, it's interesting that there was enough that they decided to to halt the study. They just decided, wait a minute, we don't want to do this long-term 15-year study. We're just going to stop everything. And that's when the message got across to a lot of providers who were prescribing estrogen and progesterone or estrogen alone. Well, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing this. And that pretty much, that attitude has continued even until today. There are a lot of women who have menopausal symptoms uh, that are pretty severe and their providers are, are saying, you know what, I don't think that you should take it unless your symptoms are very, very severe because of the risk of breast cancer and heart disease, even though it's actually a very small percentage chance for the average. Yeah, and I don't individual. have the number off the top so, of my head, but if I recall correctly, it was it was in uh, in the scale of portions of 
percentages, portions of one percentages, Mm -hmm. that was the increased risk, Mm -hmm. which overall was not a lot. And now I'm not saying like throw caution to the wind and always take it, but it seems to me that from what you've told me and what I understand about it, the study started off with some really good intentions, but it didn't really study Mm -hmm. us and the, and perimenopausal symptoms. If the average participant was 63 years old, damn it, they were already past all this. But the fact that it came out and everybody got a little hysterical about it means that today providers aren't necessarily giving treatment options based on old information that wasn't even looking. They were looking for heart disease. They were looking for cancer. They weren't even talking about perimenopause. They weren't even talking about any of the things that Mm -hmm. like our show is covering off on. And women are Mm -hmm. suffering because I guess you got to be really dying, not dying, but you got to, I mean, this idea Mm -hmm. of you're not suffering enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Doesn't that feel like the essence of healthcare for women? You're not suffering enough. Breathe. (laughs) And when you think about uh, if maybe we were using these medicines or studying at that time, women who were maybe 49, 50 and just going through menopause, that's uh, 12 years younger than the average. Maybe they would be fine. Maybe it's just because those women were older. Although that that was part of the reason why they developed those risk factors and you know for the average woman who's in their 50s and has less chance of uh progression of cardiovascular disease over that that 13 year period between 50 and 63 then maybe they weren't you know they were we wouldn't have seen so much of it we wouldn't have seen that little bit of an increase nowadays i would say for those of us who do prescribe estrogen and progesterone we just like to uh, let people know that there is this very small risk and that if they have any symptoms of heart disease or if they notice any kind of new breast lumps, that they should definitely let us know about it, uh, but that the risk is low. So that way they're, they're aware that that might happen. Uh, and also making sure that they're getting their annual testing done, like checking cholesterol and blood pressure which are those other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and also getting their routine mammograms that they should be getting to screen for early cancer. Right, uh, and doesn't all this come down to having a real conversation with your healthcare provider? And 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 it and you and it's this problem about one size fitting all with women's health just is so fucked up. It is it doesn't even exist. Every single woman mm-hmm. is so incredibly different, which again, I think is part of the reason why they don't like to study us, right? We cannot be put in a box. Right. But the key is having that in-depth conversation with a healthcare provider where you talk about risk factors, where you talked about uh, genetic dispositions, where you talk about and you get the, the blood work done and you do the thyroid testing. And then when you go on it, right. when you go on whatever the solution is, monitor, 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 just to make sure you're okay. I would have a mm-hmm. five hour long conversation if I got a right prescription for me that helped me get out mm-hmm. of this perimenopausal hell. I think you're right. I mean, when my patients come in who are on estrogen replacement, we talk about 
how is it going? Is it something you still want to be on? Is it working well for you? And usually we kind of talk about some of the things they might have determined were better since they've started taking estrogen replacement. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, they want to make sure that their bones are protected. They they like having uh, good lubrication vaginally. They like uh, they like that it, it's helping them sleep better and they're not having hot flashes. And I would say like on average, probably most women stay on estrogen replacement for like five to eight years and then they taper it down and see how they do. But you can take it uh, your whole lifetime yeah. if you want to. So, so the, you know, it's, there's a lot of variety, even after treatment started of what, how long you might so be So thinking about what we've talked about is we've talked about the different sorts of healthcare providers that can help you out. Ideally, what we've imparted to you today is that your doctor, especially your a, a generalist, the general sort of doctor, your family doctor, got their training in a lot of different areas, which was absolutely a requirement. I want my doctor to know a lot of things. But the thing is, mm-hmm. is that when it comes to hormones, to perimenopausal symptoms, your doctor may not have gone that extra mile and continued to do additional training about what kind of treatments and therapy options are available. And that's okay. That is okay. There's only so many hours in the day. But what that means is that you need to be an advocate for yourself and find someone who will. Find someone who did invest in understanding women, in understanding perimenopause, in understanding hormonal changes, who can help you. They are out there. You got to find them. Suzanne, how do I find them? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's got to be a directory somewhere, right? right? <laughs> Whew, I really wish there were, but there really is not a directory, unfortunately. The best pro- probable way is a word of mouth. You can get some ideas from looking at a website of a provider if they list women's health as one of their the things that they like to emphasize. Um, you can try calling the office and see. But I think we, we talked about a little earlier, it might be that you have to put in the investment of going in and interviewing the provider to see, is this something interviewing that Interviewing a provider? Uh, what? You... It can be done. You guys, it can be done. <laughs> interviewing a provider, seriously, you can make a little 15-minute appointment to talk to a person you're going to talk to. Take your list of questions in, asking them about how do they think about this? What certifications or treatment? What exists? What uh, continuing education do they have on that? It's a quick meeting, and I guarantee you, like, their brains will explode because very few people do this. But it's worth it, though, isn't <laughs> right. it? So don't but, assume but, it's free. But isn't it, isn't it worth it? <laughs> it I mean, is worth and it. And again, so if you're not getting the results that you want from maybe the, your gynecologist who delivered your kids 20 years ago, find somebody else. It does, you know, find somebody mm-hmm. who can really support you in what you need. There are also experts that have titles like licensed nurse practitioners and uh, and physician's assistant, which again, craziest misnomer ever, a naturopath may be able to help you. So keep looking, don't stop, and don't underestimate that girlfriend network. This is a perfect opportunity right. to ask your, your friends who are also going through the same thing. Hey man, do you go to anybody good? Mm-hmm. Is there anybody you love who's really listens to you and has been able to work with you to try to get you some solutions? We don't like to talk about this. And it's time. If you want help, if you want support, ask for it. 
pay attention if you have a provider who's doing like talks at the library sometimes that will be a clue that they're very good at women's health if they're if that's what they're talking about or um you know if you if they have a podcast or if they have some sort of kind of blog or information that way then that might be another person who would be your advocate during this time. Well, Suzanne, I think that we have really wrapped this up. This has been incredibly informative to me to understand what my physician brings to the table when it comes to me and my treatments and help and understanding what I'm going through. So, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to see next time. The next time on the Perimenopause podcast, we are going to move away from the symptoms of perimenopause and we're going to start talking about treatment options. In our next episode, we'll be talking about pharmaceutical related treatments. So if you need a prescription for it, we're going to be talking about it. Join us on hold from the pharmacy for the Perimena podcast. If you would like to visit our website, Join us at www.theperimetapodcast.com for more health-related information and links. If you have questions, comments, thoughts for another episode, please feel free to send us an email at theperimenopodcast at gmail.com.